When United Launch Alliance's new rocket, the Vulcan Centaur, makes its maiden flight, it will mark a milestone, not only for the launch industry, but for America's moon ambitions as well. The Vulcan will carry to space the Peregrine, a robotic lunar lander built, owned, and operated by Astrobotic, a space startup born out of Carnegie Mellon University. If all goes according to plan, Astrobotic could become the first company ever to successfully put a privately owned lander on the moon. Undertaking this has been 16 years in the making, says CEO John Thornton, in a paradigm shift that's also economic. Our first mission will fly and land and surface the moon for on order of $100 million. We don't we don't go to specifics on how much we've actually generated from the um, customers, but it gives you just a sense of scale. Typically, missions like this would be in the hundreds of millions, multi-hundreds of millions. Um, so we're really uh, breaking the paradigm on that. That's, that's affording much more... Um, affordable and routine access for for our, our nation's scientists. So typically, if you're a scientist, you, maybe you get one shot in your long tenured career to take a, a, a mission of science up to someplace in space. But with this approach, and if you're going to have two to maybe three landers landing every year on the surface of the moon, bringing these packages, you can do go back to the moon again and again with your science and update it and, um, and go to different locations. And that's just game changing for how we've approached space for, for decades. Liftoff is scheduled for as soon as Monday morning. Peregrine Mission 1 will carry payloads for seven countries and some commercial customers, including the cremeans of a few Star Trek luminaries. The mission also represents a contract with NASA for the Commercial Lunar Payload Services, CLIPS, program. A public-private partnership to send cargo and conduct research in preparation for the return of Americans to the lunar surface later in the decade. Peregrine will spend weeks orbiting the moon before attempting to touch down on February 23rd in a carefully choreographed landing. Once on the surface, it will carry out the specific tasks of its various payloads, collecting and sending data back to Earth. On this episode, Thornton discusses the upcoming mission and what's hinging on it for the quote-unquote moon company. I'm Morgan Brennan, and this is Manifest Space. Well, John Thornton of Astrobotic, thank you so much for joining me. Glad to be here. Uh, You are on the cusp of a major milestone for Astrobotic. Uh, Walk me through. Walk me through this first mission of a robotic lunar lander that the company's been working on for years now. Yes, 16 years in the making. We're finally here on the precipice of launch just a couple days away. Um, it's uh, it's going to be potentially the first commercial mission to go back to the surface of the moon. Um, first mission in, from U.S. soil in nearly 50 years. Um, uh, very, very exciting. A new beginning of a new commercial era on the surface. This will be the beginnings of routine, regular access. Um, this mission is going to carry six new nations to the surface of the moon. Um, it's really going to open things up and, and make a whole new world possible for access and uh, deliveries to the surface. And depending on the timing and if everything goes according to plan, you your company will be the first commercial lunar lander ever on the surface of the moon. Is that right? It's quite possible. Depends on uh, launches from our competitors and exactly how the timing is going to play out. But it's it's quite possible. We're, we're neck and neck right now with, a, with one of our competitors. Yeah, that that competitor being Intuitive Machines, but we and we've seen like launch timing shift here here and there, uh, or I guess they'll get delayed for for both for a variety of reasons. So how is this going to play out? Assuming liftoff happens Monday morning as anticipated, everything goes the way it's planned to go. What are the next steps? 
That's right. We have a few-day launch window starting January 8th. If all goes well, we will be blasted to the surf, uh, blasted towards the moon. Um, the launch vehicle will deliver us to a trajectory called translunar injection, which is basically being shot towards the moon. And then it's our lander's job the rest of the way. So we're going to do trajectory correction maneuvers on the way out. Uh, we're going to take several days to get there and then a few weeks in lunar orbit itself. Um, and the reason for the long uh, lunar orbit is we're actually waiting for the local sunrise at our landing location. Uh, so we're actually going to wait there until February 23rd. Um, and right then that day is local sunrise at the location we intend to, to operate at. And that's when we start our landing descent. It's about a one-hour operation from sending the command to land um, to actual touchdown. Um, that is going to be the ultimate nail-biting, uh, terror, thrill, excitement, all at once experience. Um, we're going to be operating that all from Pittsburgh in Mission Control at our headquarters. Um, and then uh, once we successfully soft touchdown on down on the surface of the moon, that is when our surface operations begin. Um, we're going to establish communications, become a power and communication hub for our, our customers. We're going to have rovers dropping and driving off. We're going to have um, some payloads dropping down to the surface and uh, lots of science instruments turning on. And everyone's going to be trying to scramble to get as much data as they can as quickly as they can before the sun sets in just 10 days. Because uh, at that time, we anticipate that we're going to have uh, failures of the system because it just gets down to liquid nitrogen cold and stays there for two weeks. Um, so that it will be a flurry of activity, very different than a, a Mars mission for multi-years. This is going to be a flurry for 10 days um, and uh, just to prove out as much as we possibly can and learn as much as we possibly can for, for the subsequent missions to come. You kind of already touched on it, but why why is sunrise so important? And, and what does that mean in terms of the sun cycles you see on this part of the moon? Yeah, the moon has 28 days to or 28 Earth days for every single lunar day. So that means 14 days of light, 14 days of dark. When it's light, it's uh, above boiling. It can get up to 120 degrees Celsius or about 250 degrees Fahrenheit on the surface. Um, once the sun sets, it gets down to liquid nitrogen cold and stays that way. So it's down to minus 180 degrees C um, and it stays that way. And it's really, really challenging to survive that. Uh, most battery chemistries will fail in that environment. Um, and uh, even just small things like a solder joint could break uh, with that extreme temperature variation. Um, so it's very difficult to survive the night uh, with the architecture that we have today. We are working on technology to survive that into the future. Um, and there are other ways to do it. To, typically, you need government resources to get that done because they use radioisotope materials to, to survive the night. And that's difficult for commercial. Um, so for now, this first mission, we're just focusing on landing, focusing on getting as many payloads operational and get as much data as we can back. And we're going to learn a lot from that. And subsequent missions will we'll continue to amp up the capability and, and future set. So you have 10 days to do all of this um, with some of those payloads. Then is the is the window here 10 days or for some of these payloads, is it going to be much longer than that? Uh, it's 10 days just for all of the payloads. And the reason for that is all of the payloads rely on our power and communication to operate. Um, the communication back to Earth is very difficult from the moon and you need a lot of power and a big antenna. Uh, and all of our payloads are too small to carry their own versions of that. So we're actually going to use a local Wi-Fi network to send all of our uh, payload data through our systems back to Earth uh, with our, our special space antenna that can uh, do uh, bandwidth connection back back to Earth and get all of that data down. Um, which is fascinating in of itself because it's such a different business model than anything we've seen lunar-wise ever before. Um, at, and, and, and that sort of gets to what you're doing with Astrobotic, the fact that this is a commercially built and owned, right, uh, lunar lander. And then you're basically acting, you're basically renting out your services 
for your hardware and for your technology to the government. That's exactly it. We are a cargo delivery service. We're a power uh, station. We are a communication provider. That is that is the nuts and bolts and, and really the business model for what we do. Uh, we've got 20 customers on board the first mission. Some are just using delivery, i.e. Just, they just want to get there. Others are using the full suite of other services with communication and power services. Um, but ultimately, this is the beginnings of routine, regular access to the moon. And this is what our nations and world scientists and explorers will, will use to uh, discover more about the moon and, and uh, find ways to use it in ways we've never had possible before and really open the future of our, our, our whole solar system. Because the moon really truly is a, a, a gateway to, to the rest of the solar system. And as part of the CLIPS program at NASA, the Commercial Lunar Payload Services program. How instrumental is a program like that to a company like Astrobotic being able to realize this vision? NASA's CLIPS program is really, really critical. And, and I, I can't thank enough uh, the agency. And I'm very lucky uh, just taking my company hat off and putting my U.S. citizen hat on. We're very lucky as a nation to have NASA um, be as forward thinking as they are and, and risk uh, tolerant as they are to take on a program like this. Um, to bet on commercial, to bet on industry, to be able to break the cost paradigm, to get back to the moon at a regular cadence at price points that have never been possible before. Um, they have uh, manifested 10-ish missions to go back to the surface of the moon with this model. Um, it really is the beginning of a, a, a flurry of activity on the moon. Um, and it, it's a new paradigm in that if, uh, if not every mission is successful, that's okay, because there's a whole bunch of other missions right behind it. Um, this is much more uh, similar to SpaceX and other commercial launch providers um, than it is a big multi-billion dollar uh, planetary mission. Um, and I think that affords a new opportunity and it actually positions us really well on an international stage um, for uh, competing and, uh, and maintaining our leading edge in space, um, simply because if we're doing commercial deliveries at this price point, there, there's no one else in the, in the world that can keep up with us. What is this price point? And, and, how, and how much... And how much less, or I guess more affordable, I should say, is it than any kind of historical precedent? Our first mission will fly and land at the surface of the moon for on order of $100 million. We don't, we don't go to specifics on how much we've actually generated from the um, customers, but it gives you just a sense of scale. Typically, missions like this would be in the hundreds of millions, multi-hundreds of millions. Um, so we're really uh, breaking the paradigm on that. That's, that's affording much more... Um, affordable and routine access for, for our, our nation's scientists. So typically, if you're a scientist, you, maybe you get one shot in your long tenured career to take a, a, a mission of science up to someplace in space. But with this approach, and if you're going to have two to maybe three landers landing every year on the surface of the moon, bringing these packages, you can do go back to the moon again and again with your science and update it and, um, and go to different locations. And that's just game changing for how we've approached space for, for decades. Um, so it's it's very, very, very exciting uh, for, for the future. And I think it will also open up the possibility of using resources and building infrastructure on the moon. That's really going to be our next like leapfrog moment is if we are able to use resources from the moon for in-space activities, um, say uh, even taking some of the material and 3D printing new parts or taking materials and, and uh, creating rocket fuel, like using the water at the poles of the moon, um, you start to learn to live off the land. And if we can live off the land in space, that totally changes how we think about going to Mars and going to, to the moon and other destinations. Um, and we're going to learn to do all of that on the surface of the moon. It's our nearest neighbor. It's the place to get started. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. So I just want to go back to clips for a second. 10-ish missions. How many are you contracted to do with NASA? 
So we are contracted for two CLIPS missions right now. The first one's about to fly in just a couple, couple days. Our next mission flies later this year. And it's a very large, very important mission. It, uh, it's a Vulcan, or sorry, a NASA Viper rover that's going to be flying on the vehicle with us. It is a 450 kilogram vehicle uh, that NASA, it's a rover that's going to be sent to the surface of the moon aboard our vehicle called Griffin. Um, and that uh, system is going to land at the end of this year. It's going to land at the poles of the moon and deliver that 450 kilogram uh, rover. And it will drop and drive off into the distance and it will drill for water. Uh, this could be the first time that uh, that robotic ac activity can produce and, and uh, look at the waters at the poles of the moon and understand the composition, quantity, and uh, and most importantly, exactly how to potentially extract it uh, for future uses on the moon. And if you can get water, of course, you can drink it, you can split it, and you've got oxygen to breathe. But most importantly, you can split it and condense it and make rocket fuel. So you could produce rocket fuel at the poles of the moon. The moon could become a gas station for delivering things back and forth to the moon, to refueling spacecraft there to go deeper into the solar system. Um, maybe one day we could use that moon fuel to mine the mine the moon and bring resources back to Earth. Um, it's uh, it's truly game changing. Again, if we think about those space resources and how to use them, and if we can bring that into our economy, our, our thinking. Um, it really can can open up and change the way we think about Earth and, and provide uh, massive quantities of resources that are really unfathom, fath unfathomably large. What does that mean for total addressable market? Can you even wrap your arms around that? <laughs> it depends on what kind of time scale you're willing to think on. Um, uh, for, for the near term, it's going to be a lot of science and exploration. But, but long term, if the resources really do open up, I mean, you're talking potentially all, all of the, the large scale high price point commodities could potentially be sourced in space. Um, and we're talking a long time, you know, 50, 100 plus years, but we're building the foundation for that now. I mean, I, I think of this as the, the right brother moments for, for, for the moon. Um, we're building the foundation of, of routine, regular access and opening up the possibility of new resources. Um, and I, I think this is a, a Beth bet that is very worth taking for our, our species. Um, this is how we're going to create sustaining life on the earth is we're going to stop mining and messing it up here. We're going to use the resources from space and create the, the, you know, the blue planet that we can all sustain and survive on uh, and thrive on using in space resources. Which, which is an argument and a concept we've been hearing in a business model. We've been hearing more and more about um, in terms of the breakdown, I guess, near term, medium term, longer term for astrobotic between some of these government missions and commercial missions? I mean, what, what would commercial missions look like? Do you already have some signed up? We actually do have some commercial missions on board our first mission it, itself. Um, you can kind of get a little bit of a sample of that. We've got a, a company from Japan sending a time capsule to the surface of the moon. Uh, it's a drink called Pakari Sweat. Um, and uh, it's a super popular drink in Japan and Asia. And they're sending a time capsule with hundreds of thousands of dreams from the children from Asia. And they actually have a powdered form of their drink inside as well to one day be mixed with moon water. And every one of the, the cans that are being sold here on Earth actually is a key to that time capsule. So the next generation is getting a key to the time capsule on the surface of the moon to one day open that up. Um, for that brand, that's a great inspiration message and a great way to connect with, with their, their fans and um, and uh, consumers of, of the business. So I think we'll see um, those kinds of fan engagement and people engagement activities in the moon in the, in the near future. Um, over time, I think the big businesses are going to be in, in infrastructure, that is communications from the surface and uh, back and forth from the surface of the moon. 
uh, and power on the surface of the moon. That's one in particular that Astrobotic has its eyes on. Um, we have a program and a, an architecture that we call LunaGrid to build a sustaining power grid at the poles of the moon um, that can survive the night, that can survive multi-days or multi-years on the surface of the moon and can recharge astronauts, re recharge the suits, recharge the tools, recharge whatever you need, uh, rovers. Um, we're going to need that kind of infrastructure for long-term operations on the moon. And I think that's the next big business opportunity for, for the moon. Is that something you're already developing in addition to lunar landers? It is. It is. It only makes sense for us to be doing that because we're, we're already in the cargo game. Um, the next step is, OK, what do we do next? Uh, and that, that's the infrastructure. So we actually have two contracts right now um, to build up a full scale version of um, of the lunar grid architecture and, and test it here terrestrially. Um, and we're uh, we're we're pushing uh, NASA and advocating uh, to others as much as we can that we need to be setting up a demonstration of this for at full scale on the surface of the moon. Um, so we're, we're working on it right now. That's very cool. Now, you mentioned the 16 years in the making. Astrobotic was essentially born out of what? The, the science labs of Carnegie Mellon. I guess give me, give me the origin story. Yeah, 16 years ago, we were pursuing, we got started pursuing it, the Google Lunar X Prize. I was a, an undergrad coming out of school. Um, I was supposed to go out into to industry, actually, to go work for Boeing. Um, but I got an opportunity to uh, meet a professor, Red Whitaker, who was starting this thing up. Um, and we, we got things going and um, uh, had a few hot years. And then we, then we crashed and, and iterate that a few times. We almost went under uh, multiple times through the course. Uh, about 10 years ago, I, I stepped into the, to the helm um, to, to steer the ship. Um, we were able to, to steady it and grow it on technology contracts. And then over time, uh, make some of the first sales of commercial payloads to go back to the surface of the moon. Um, and then over time, eventually, um, NASA and, and uh, uh, the U.S. government got in the game with, with CLIPS. Uh, and that was really our breakout point. Um, we went from 15 people in about 20, early 2019 to now 250 people uh, wow. today in 2023. Um, so just a, a meteoric rise of, of, uh, of growth and activity. So it's been, been quite, a, quite a ride. Um, but truly, the hardest part along the way has been convincing people that it's possible. The idea that a small startup in Pittsburgh, of all places in this country, can uh, can start a business to go back to the surface of the moon and, and actually make money doing it. Um, that, that's a tough notion. And we got a lot of laughs along the way and people didn't believe in us. But um, but there were a small group just enough that believed in us along the way to get us to where we are today. Are you have you been uh, raising capital from the VC community and others? I guess what what is your timeline for that? What's your timeline for going public? Would you want to go public? Uh, we're keeping our options open on that. We, uh, in our early days, we were seeking capital. Um, that those were a lot of the conversations um, were the folks that were laughing at us. <laughs> I remember going to some pitch fests, and and literally the judges were laughing at me. Um, so it, it it's taken a while. I, th I think the um, investment community has now recognized that yes, this really is an investable uh, business and opportunity. Um, at this point, we are, we're open to conversations. We're not actively raising a round right now, but we're open to, to seeing where things go. We're right. We're 80 percent plus uh, uh, closely held owned. So uh, people at the company own that. Um, so we really are um, a product of our, our own uh, sweat equity. Um, and uh, I think that's an unusual situation to be in. And we're, we're very proud of that. So we're going to be careful about who we partner with into the future and and what our uh, what our next path is from here. Okay, so you have this first launch. Assuming all goes according to plan, you you land your first lander on the on the surface of the moon. You've got another one in the works for later this year, and then 
behind that business infrastructure, uh, lunar infrastructure. Longer term, what is the vision for this company? Where do you where do you see this going, or is it really? I don't know if this is a pun or not, but like sky's the limit because this is such a new economy or, or a new new concept. Well, we think about ourselves as as the moon company. Um, we are delivering things to the surface of the moon. We've got rovers that can drive across it. We're building the infrastructure for the moon. Um, and if we can operate and build sustaining infrastructure on the moon, then why not the next uh, uh, planet in our solar system? Why not the next uh, deep space destination? We could potentially start disrupting um, science missions that are, are done um, at, at a fairly high price point. Maybe commercial can take those opportunities on with this with this same approach. Um, so I think there's there's a lot left for for Astrobotic uh, to continue to grow into. Um, and we, we also want to uh, grow our DOD portfolio and create a nice balanced um, approach for, for space uh, and build on our space robotics talents and capabilities in, in the company uh, and create a long sustaining um, business for, for space and, uh, and continue to grow aggressively. Um, so we're, we're just uh, 250 space nerds and uh, super fans um, excited to be a part of this big industry and, and, and doing something big like a moon landing. Um, and we just want to keep doing that. We're, we're having a blast and, uh, and looking forward to the next opportunities. That's wonderful. Just real quickly, the, the DOD piece of this with robotics, is that about the technologies or is there or is there a lunar aspect, a national security aspect to the moon as well? Um, I, I'll leave that to the DOD to address in terms of okay. the, their interests there. Um, but but generally, space robotics is is very interesting opportunity to to apply um, for satellite to satellite operations. Um I think in general, NASA is primarily interested from the U.S. government to go back to the moon. Okay, great. Uh, well, we're looking forward to liftoff and congratulations on reaching this milestone 16 years in the making. Truly appreciate the time, John Thornton of Astrobotic. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. That does it for this episode of Manifest Space. Make sure you never miss a launch by following us wherever you get your podcasts and by watching our coverage on Closing Bell Overtime. I'm Morgan Brown.